On Thursday 24th of February 2022, The Cat Club, classic album Thursdays, presented a long-playing vinyl record. That album was The Velvet Underground and Nico, originally released in 1967. Our special guest that memorable evening was Maxine Peake. The actor, writer and director had played Nico on stage in the Nico Project at the Manchester International Festival in 2019. Maxine had kindly agreed to come along to the Cat Club in Pontefract to talk about the album, the band and much more besides. Ian Clayton was in the interviewer's chair. Happy trails! Will you please welcome a friend of us all, Mr Ian Clayton. Maxine and me first met, well, I think, last year at year before. We, 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 uh, I helped Anne Scargill and, and Betty Cook to write their joint memoir about the, uh, the part that the Women Against Pit Closures played in the miners' strike and, and then about their, their lives as well. And some of the people in this room have read it. I can see some people here. Uh, and that's it's a Bonnie book. Um, and when we came to... I was talking to Anne and Betty, and I, I said it'd be nice to have somebody quite well known to write the, the forward to the book. And quick as a flash, Anne said, uh, I'll phone Maxine Peak up. I said, Do you know her? She said, Of course, I bloody know her. <laughs> uh, and, and, she, and so she phoned Maxine up, and, and Maxine agreed and wrote a lovely forward to this book. And then we thought we'd push the boat out a bit. And last year, we, we decided to bring the book to life by doing a rehearsed readings from it at uh, Barnsley Lamp Room Theatre. We, we had a cracking night there. And we read, ex- well, Maxine read, read excerpts from the book and I did these. <laughs> Sounds like a recorder choir. <laughs> <laughs> Tin whistle. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to sound great on this audio recording of our interview. Eh? Nothing went on summer. Um, we'll just tell him it's John Cale. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's fitting. Um, so, uh, yeah, we did the thing at, at Basley, at Basley, and we had a, a, a lovely night. And uh, I fetched a few of these with me in case anybody would like one, and they're signed by the girls, the ladies. Right, OK, so that's, that's how we, we come to know one another. And we thought it'd be nice to have Maxine over at, at, at the Cat Club because we like nice guests to come to present records. And in preparation for this interview today, I... Well, I've been preparing all week, but I just, this, just this... I'm glad you are. Just this afternoon, <laughs> I, I listened to your podcast with Sean Keaveney. And I don't know if anybody's listening listened to Keaveney's podcast. It's good. And he's doing one at the moment. It's about designing your own festival, your own music festival. And Maxine went on to design her own music festival. And I discovered how eclectic your music taste is. Yeah. Because you mentioned that your first gig was in Spiral Carpets. It was. At uh, the uh, Royal Court in Liverpool. Yeah, and how old yeah. were you? Oh, probably just turned 15. And then... Yeah, from there, then I went to Glastonbury. Yes. 
that year, I just said to my mum, I had a friend whose parents were teachers, so my mum thought she was, they were really respectable. <laughs> <laughs> and because she was single parent family, I said, I'm going to Glastonbury with Cheryl. Her mum and dad said, it's OK. And my mum said, all right, what's Glastonbury? I said, you don't need to know. <laughs> so um, off we went. And, yeah, you were so just 15? I was just 15. And I still remember there were some guys in the, the tent next to us, um, hot... Sorry, so a hot knife in opium. Don't ask. And uh, and they turned to us and we were in the next and they said, You want some? And we were like, Oh no, you fine, thank you. And then um, they said, Oh, you're Glastonbury now, it's full of like fifteen year old girls skinning up on the GCSE <laughs> biology books. And we're like, Oh, is it? Is it? But yeah, we uh, to pretending to be a lot older than we were. Yeah. But yeah, we were very naive. But we saw Raikuda, we didn't know who he was at the time. But we kept asking people who should go and see put so Raikuda played. So it was the same year as Happy Mondays. Probably. Yeah, it was Happy Mondays. Adamski. We went with. Yeah. Do we you there? Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan was on in the green field. I went to see him there. I can't remember. All right. <laughs> All right. What a long time ago. But yeah. So, but then, very quickly, you graduate from your indie days to being a bit of a psychedelic uh, music fan. Well, a lot of it sort of ran slightly alongside. I, I was one of those, I, I, a bit like a magpie. I always, or maybe a bandwagon jumper. I'd see, you know, I'd go, oh, that, that looks good, I like that. I, I wasn't very good at sticking into one thing. And I think as well, I grew up in Bolton and, and everybody was into something, even though it was all different tribes. Sort of, we all, there was like two pubs that we all hung out in. So mods were hanging about with rockers and, you, you know, there was just a big goths and... There was a big gang of us, so we, it, it's just sort of, it's os- osmosis of mm. different... And some of the stuff you didn't at the time admit that you're into, because mm. it wasn't, you know, you didn't want to... You know, you were, le- were your allegiances lay, but... Yeah, definitely, I, I, I was into... So, so indie was the music that, you know, that got me into... Because I, I grew up in a household that... My dad was sort of into a bit of music. My sister was a new romantic, and that really wasn't my sort of thing. Um, and she older said, sister. Older sister. Mm. And she, on my music, she said, turn that hippie shit off. That's <laughs> all, whatever it was. Yeah. You know. Um, because I've heard that you're quite a fan of Aphrodite's child. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Some, some nods exactly. of recognition here yeah, in the audience. <laughs> but who'd have thought Demis Roussos? That was a big shock to me. You know, the big caftan wearing love walrus was... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, One of Aphrodite's so, children. Yeah, well, exactly. He was a big, wasn't he? He was a big yeah. hit with the ladies in the 70s. Yeah. We were talking about it the other day because we were saying about Abigail's party. You know, and it's Demis Russo, isn't it? But it was Elvis, I suppose it was Elvis originally, wasn't it? And they couldn't get the rights. Is that true? I never Yeah, knew. and how perfect that it is. Do you like Demis? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it just... And I mean, it's ever, funny ever. how things happen. Yeah. Yeah. And they're right, you know. How yeah. do you get into this music? Do you find it out yourself or do you have... Mates who were influencing you, know. Lots of mates. I mean, I was younger. It was a bit of a impress the boys thing. I got it a bit wrong. It wasn't like, you know, try and look attractive and maybe a bit alluring. I was just like, oh well, if I go and tell them I'm into the music they're into, they might want to go out with me. They want to be your best friend. They don't want to be your girlfriend. <laughs> it's like that. So a lot of it was. But a lot. I've always surprised when I did sort of have relationships and lads have gone, oh, did you find out about this? They're always quite surprised, or it wasn't then, mm. that if you were a, a, a young woman into your music, there was always mm. a bit of a, how, how did you discover that? But, you know, it was things like reading NME. Mm. And a lot of, the, you know, I was lucky when I was growing up at the scenes, there was a lot of music shows on. 
So mm. you would, you know, and especially in the northwest. Mm. So you'd you'd see a, a you know a band on somewhere and go, what are they? And then it's the doors that open, doesn't it? I mean, I I was I suppose really sometimes fifteen, I look a bit of a late starter, but Storm Roses for me, seeing them on top of the pops and going, crikey. You know, as well as going the probably at the time I thought they were the most four beautiful most beautifulest men I'd ever seen in my life. But I was like, what is this? And then sort of going, oh, there's a 60s influence. So then going, because I didn't grow up my, you know, the 60s music. My dad was sort of early Beatles, not when they went weird, as he said, <laughs> you know, and things like that. So it, <laughs> um, so it was, yeah, finding, going through the 60s and then going through, you know, through all that. And I did that whole phase of sort of the more softer 60s, little, you know, what's he called? He did, uh, what's his, the, the, Flowers in your head that we've just played before. Scott, Scott McKenzie. McKenzie. Mm. Going through that and then going more rocky, then psych. And then mm. clubs in Manchester as well. We used to go to a club called The Brick House, which used to have a Friday night, sort of, which used to do a lot of... It was a, it, There was a night called Love, and that was a lot of psych, um, you know, and garage. Mm. And you used to see Marky e. Smith propping up the bar, and you used to go, that's that old bloke from that. What's that old band car and then you know years later getting into the fall but at the time going mm. and his funny leather jacket at the bar what was that what's that band called he was in mm. and then to see him you know every so often he has a huge sort of resurgence don't they the fall and i'm no, no longer with us but yeah so it was just yeah and yeah. you had a good record shop in, in Bolton. yeah yeah x records X records. X records, it was called, in Bolton. And it was one of those you'd go in and, I, you know, so you'd have all the records and then they'd have all the grigs on the wall and the coaches so you could go and get your tickets and book a coach as well. Mm. You know, so they'd say, we're going, this is the, we're organising a coach to this gig and that. So that's why we went to Liverpool because we got a coach over to Liverpool, went to Glastonbury because, you know, you don't want to get your tickets but they used to organise And they'd have handwritten notices up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you'd go, oh, you'd have a look what gigs are on. Yeah. <laughs> And that's how you'd got. I miss them old record shops. The one in Pontigal, Mrs. J's, and it used to be it used to be at Market Hall, opposite a butcher's, Brilliant. and it had Bakelite headphones for you to listen to latest music on, and whenever, whatever you were listening to, were accompanied by mince beans. <laughs> <laughs> really? I forgot about that. For a lot of years. Uh, it's a cobbler's now, so. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what X records <laughs> it didn't. Well, then I think it was like Andy's Records kit. There was like a chain Andy's called Andy's, chain, yeah. and then obviously HMV, and then everybody. But that was the place where you met people as well. Yeah, you know, was. you'd sort of, wouldn't you? You'd sift through, and you go, "Oh, what they're looking at? Yeah. Sidle up and have a. They look cool. What they? What you know? What section they in? And you chat to you know. That's, what section? <laughs> I can imagine you in your Bolton days <laughs> looking for acid jazz records. I had that fit, yeah. Did you? Of course I did. <laughs> in my white jeans and my little, um, you know, my loafers and my stripy polo necks and, and my de- 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 oh, t-shirt. Yeah. yeah, Mother Earth and, and all that, yeah. Um, Jamiri Kwai and... Lovely. Yeah. Well, Jamiri Kwai, not so much as... What were the other ones? There was Mother Earth. Incognito. Cordroy. I remember mm. going and seeing Cordroy. Cordroy. Yeah. James Taylor. I used to really... A big James Taylor quartet from... I love that stuff. Yeah. I made my granddad take the carpet up in my bedroom so I could... Have, I remember. I can't remember what the album was. and the, It was a wooden floor with a carpet, like a rug like this, and all the records, and I was like... And my granddad says, your mother would go mad when they lived in a little house. She has no carpet upstairs. <laughs> She'll hear every move. And I was like, please... So, uh, will you varnish it? It took him forever. It nearly killed him. 
I, I like you to talk about your granddad. He, yeah. he was a, a great influence. Oh, yeah, definitely. Inspiration. Huge. Yeah, and it's, as I was thinking the other day, because I was watching on Sky Arts and been, they did a documentary about, the, I think it's a repeat, about the Style Council. And I used to love the Style Council. I know Paul Weller always says, oh, I wasn't really, you know, he, I don't know if he's changed his tune, but I remember many years ago he sort of looked a bit back on the Style Council era, didn't he, with a bit of disdain, and it wasn't. But because my granddad was in politics and he was, he was in the Communist Party, well, he was, and then in the 70s he got expelled from his branch. Well, the, exp- the branch got expelled. It's com- the the Horwich branch got expelled. It's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. It's the People's Front of Judea, the Judean People's Front. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so, he, 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 but, you know, he told me about Red Wedge. You know, so that was finding music like that. And I remember thinking, crikey, actually, when I look back now, I got into the Style Council because of the... Li- I must have been about 10 when our favourite shot, the album, was out. And I bought Walls, you know, I heard Walls Come Tumbling Down. But it was the lyrics first. Mm. And it was only I started to appreciate the music later. And because as well, near us, there was a lot of scooter boys, um, sort of rude boys, mods, you know. Mm. And I, again, it sounds terrible. I sound really predatory, don't I? But, you know, you're like, oh, they're really cool. So, But st- the Star Council felt a, an, an easier way to ease in. And my mum wouldn't let me have a parker. She said they looked dirty. <laughs> And going to Manchester Underground Market, begging my nan to get me some bowling shoes. This is the you mother know. that wants to ask you, what's Glastonbury? What's Glastonbury? She said, oh, no, they look grubby. <laughs> she was obsessed with things looking grubby. Uh, I don't know, it's a... Yeah. Did your granddad have any records? My granddad had, obviously, so we had Paul Robson. Wow. Nana Miscori, I think that might have been my nan's. But his <laughs> favourite seven-inch was the Shangri-La's Leader of the Pack. That was his... He said, oh, I love this. Yeah. That was his, so that's always been one of my favourites. But yeah, and a, and a Robert, um, crikey, what's he called? Robert, uh, the Easter Uprising, Robert, uh, uh, the Irish Uprising. Uh, not Robert Tressel, was it Robert Tressel? No. No, what's he called? It'll come to me in a minute. He had an album yeah. all about of his the history. Talk, yeah, Robert, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, yeah, maybe that's why I get an eclectic. Because we used to have this little cupboard in, in his living room, he was my step-granddad, he used to look at Leila Mortars and he used to have this pull-out and it had records in, and then he used to get the engineering paper he used to bring a load home from work scrap, and I used to draw on the back of it yeah. so I remember seeing, you know, it was like purple on the back with all the, draw, you know, all the engineering drawings on the back, he was on, he was just on the you know, like assembly line, but having that and then the record, and there was the smell of that and I used to have Puff the Magic Dragon the Sam, Mike Sam singers <laughs> with white horse on the other side white horses on the other side it's a lovely song. Yeah, and I've coloured... Snowy white horse. Oh, it gets me every yeah, time. It gets me and all. I know. I'm, I'm puffed a magic dragon, I still can't. <laughs> Even though people say, it's about marijuana. I was like, I don't know whether it is. <laughs> yeah, my mum had that at a funeral, actually. Yeah. Puff the magic dragon. She had puffed the magic dragon. She had, she had the theme... She cremated. <laughs> she, had, <laughs> she had the theme from fame... <laughs> and Charles Aznavour, she, because that was number one when I was born. But she'd always, she didn't. This was before she knew she was ill. Which she always said, "This is what I want at my funeral." And when she did go after they played, which the timing of the theme tune from Fame going as the curtains closed, and the vicar turned round to curtsy, and it looked like she was going to go into some big. Me and my sister just lost it. it looked like she was going to go into some big dance number. So she just sort of went down to sort of. Bang. But yeah, and we did have. Oh, the entry song was Antiques Roadshow, because she loved a bit of Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> Fantastic. You see, you never know what to expect. <laughs> <hey>? <laughs> 
I've only asked one question. <laughs> Sorry, I will. Do say, Matty, please shut up. Let's, let, I just, no, let's leave music for just a minute, because yeah. I just want to ask a, a bit about you, um, and then we'll come back to this record and, and Nico and stuff. But I, one of the things that I, I'm always impressed by, by you is the way you uncover stories of, of strong northern women in, in your work. Um, and that's really impressive, because it's like allowing people to see a glimpse of other history that we don't normally see. Yeah. And it's because you have a genuine interest. You're not like an actor who, who takes a part. You're an actor who actually seeks out a part, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, because I can't... I, and I always say, I think it's because I'm actually not... I'm not a good enough actor just to do something for the sake of it. I can't. I can't. I've tried it and I'm terrible. I have to really... I have to be really interested in it. And I'm mm. not... I'm not. There's no disrespect to actors who do, and it's, it's a job. Mm. And I've been very lucky that... For ninety nine point, you know, ninety nine percent of the time, I have done, I've done a few dodgy things in my time. That, you know, that I wasn't that, you know, uh, you know yeah, yeah. Mm. But um, yeah, I just, I, I have to have an interest in it. I, and again, I always say to people, I don't necessarily have to like the character, mm. or it's not about. Um, but for me, it's about what it's the story. And I, I just felt there was all when I was, you know, sort of midway. I don't know. About ten years ago, maybe a bit longer, t- talking to friends, female actor friends, who are always saying, "Oh, the parts are not there," and you know, it's there's that old saying, you know, if you're an actress, there's a, you know, hang on in there because there's a part, you know, the, you'll get some great part as a mother, or, you know, a wife or a girlfriend. Mm. It's that mm. of of a great character. The characters, mm. the female characters, are always sort of afterthought. So I used to go for, go down to London and see mates, and we'd sit in coffee shops, morning, morning, morning. That there was no parts that we felt interesting or that we could relate to. And and I thought we can't keep sitting and moaning about it anymore. And I thought, well, I've got a bit of an in because I've got a little bit of you know you, you have a bit of a profile. So you know, and I know it's a lot easier when you do. So initially, I I approached Radio Four and said I've got an idea for that was the Beryl Burton mm. clip. The, the play I wrote about Anne Scargill was the thing I'd had in my head for a long time. I wanted to write a film about that, but nobody seemed to be interested. So when I did the Beryl Burton straight away, they said, have you got any more ideas? And I went, I have, actually. This is the first idea that I had, is to write about Anne Scargill and the women against pit closures mm. and, and when they occupied Parkside. Mm. Just because... I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, people are aware of Beryl Burton. Is. I, I'm sure you all are, of course. You're a famous cyclist, yeah. Which then leads on to which then leads on to uh, Anne Scargill, and Anne yeah. and Anne, Anne had actually occupied that part. Yeah, yeah pit. It uh, was I will, uh, It was mind blowing that they didn't. I remember again as a teenager, sort of it being on the news, but not really. Mm-hmm. Not that they didn't pay much attention, but I just went, oh, okay, that's what's happening. And it was only years later. I used to do work for Wickers, the Wickers Beer Company. That was what it was called. You know, at festivals, you go around mm. to festivals, and if you in at the time was in the Young Communist League, don't judge me. And um, you used to go and work. Um, so you would, they would pay your organisation, and you'd do like a four-hour shift, and you get free beer, and, and you get free entry to a festival, and you do three or four shifts a day, and, and they looked really looked after you. And then I was talking to somebody there, every because I was quite young, everybody kept thinking I was in the Woodcraft Fort, which was really annoying me because I just kept thinking that was really posh, like. Go guides. So why does everybody think I'm in the Woodcraft Fork? I'm not posh. I didn't really you don't have to be posh to be in the Woodcraft. Anyway, long story. Uh, so um, and so and this woman I was talking to. She said, oh, "Where are you from?" I said, "Oh, I'm I'm from Bolton." And she went, "Oh, well, do you know this?" And I said, "Well, I know a bit about it." And then she explained the whole mm. sort of scenario to me. And then then I must have been about 
18, and I'm thinking, God, that would make a brilliant film. Well, so it just sort of, yeah. It might be one yet. I've tried pitching it. Mm. It's really difficult trying to get, you know, unless you it's get Marvel Streep as Anne. It's a fantastic yeah. story. I mean, Anne. <laughs> Anne was dangerous. She she did really dangerous things. They they, they occupied. They, they sat outside a Grimethorpe pit in a caravan for about three years. Yeah. She rarely yeah. went home and with her mates and the brazier going. And that they'd been impressed by what the um, Greenham women did. Yeah. It's, a, it's, an, it's an unholy alliance in a way, because a load of middle-class women at Greenham and a load of working-class women at Grimethorpe, you wouldn't put them together. Yeah. But they used to go down and help each other. And, he, and the, the kind of, I don't know, guerrilla warfare that Anne likes... She was impressed by them women who, who invaded the base, the Greenham base, yeah. and tied themselves to railings and stuff. And she thought she'd have a go at it at Grimethorpe Pit. Mm-hmm. Except it's a lot harder to get down a pit than it is to get into a, a, a an American yeah. Army. For the fact that she, yeah. you know, that they did, you know, they, they didn't even plan, you know, there was no grand plan, was there? Let's just get down there. And I think, wow, it's... They waited for an Easter holiday and the pit were taking visitors. Yeah. And that's how they got themselves down. But a few nights before, Anne had done a solo mission to get down Grimethorpe Drift. And, a, and two security men had caught her, and she struggled herself out of her coat and ran off. Was that when she glued a future son-in-law in, the, uh, in his office? That was some time lately. <laughs> she said when she met her, re- <laughs> tell him the story. What she's referring to is uh, Anne Scargill's daughter is a very... I don't know if I can tell this story, because it's taping. All right. Um, suffice to say, Anne, Anne's daughter married the former manager of Grimethorpe Pit, and uh, Anne had had a lot of run-ins with him. And on the night that she invited them to tea, he walked in and she says, I bloody know you! <laughs> she said, you bastard. You bastard. <laughs> I bloody know you, you bastard. <laughs> When I've got the when I wrote the play, I put in. I said something, and I said that yeah, that bastard Logan. More for Jim than you know, because yeah. he's he's a lovely fella, isn't he? Is, he is. But uh, yeah, Anne's, Anne's daughter's now married to a former enemy. Yeah. And then you know you do the Anne Scargill thing as a radio thing, and then you've worked with, about the uh, Ed Scarf revolutionaries oh, in, yeah. in, in Hull as well, with about Lillian Bilocker. Bilocker, yeah, yeah, I did that, that. And that again, that was an idea I took to the Royal Exchange Theatre, because I just thought, oh, that'd be... If we set it round, like, on a, on a ship, and it's in the round, and I took it to Sarah Franken, who then ran the theatre, and she went, it's, it's, it's about... It's set in Hull. Why would we do it? And I went, mm. should we need to take it to Hull? And, and I said, well, what contacts have we ever in Hull? And she went, well, matter of fact, she said, in two years' time, it's going to be whole city culture. And I said, oh, we don't really want to take a story to a city out, as outsiders. That made me really nervous, going, yes. oh, by the way, we're going to come and tell you such a, a close yeah. sort of story, you know, that runs through your veins of so many people in that that city. Anyway, they accepted it, and we, and, and we got the Unthanks came and played with us. And they were like the house band, and they were amazing, and and the, the reception was fantastic. And the people of Hull, mm. you know, I first I must admit, I first went to Hull. I got off the train and I went, oh god! I was doing like three days research there, and I thought, oh, it's a bit grim, isn't it? Yeah. I love Hull now. In yeah. fact, driving up here, I saw the sign for Hull, and I thought, oh, my yeah. fella needs a break. Well, I never go up to Hull for a couple. I love Hull. Yeah, it's just because the people are a 
you know what you mean? The the the. I it's don't a, know. It's an autonomous city because it's it's out on a limb and it. Yeah. It's, they've had to do their own thing over years. But I'd be walking to and they go, "Hey, Maxine." Mm. I go, "Hiya." Mm. And they go, "Yeah, I go yeah." And that bit. I'm like, "What?" The best one was a woman came to me. She said, "Hey, how you doing?" She said, "How long are you here for?" I said, "Oh, I'm here for about three, four days." She went, "Have you been to Marks and Spencers yet?" <laughs> Little and then about two days later, I was in Marks and Spencers, and she worked in there. But I remember going, "Is that the best that Hull have got? <laughs> Is Marks and Spencers the pinnacle of?" And then this woman was like, "Do you remember me?" But it, it's you know, it was it was, yeah, it was. I really, I loved it, and I loved doing that. That I wasn't in it; I wrote it. And, yeah. and um, she was a formidable woman, Lily. Oh God! Well, they all were. Four of those women who were thrown together. It's slightly different than. Then Anne's story, because they didn't know each other, basically. It was, mm. you know, they wanted representatives from the community and, the, you know, Lillian sort of volunteered and then four women, you know, the, the, the other three women volunteered. So these four women sort of thrust together and it was just how, you know, especially Lillian was, atta- you know, was, was vilified for it and actually the men didn't welcome her with open arms and and it was you know it was a feudal system wasn't it the trawler industry and Lillian Biloka was a, a cod skinner um and in 1967 uh the triple trawler just that's yeah. was 68 wasn't 68, it 68 yeah. 1968 three trawlers from Hull went went were lost at sea within the space of a few weeks and lost lots of men and uh Lillian Bilocker, whose family had worked in the fishing industry all for generations, said, enough's enough, we need to do something. Uh, you know, two of these trawlers didn't even have a radio on them, and the, the, the men had been drowned for nearly a month before the news came back to... Yeah, I think there was, fi- there was 59. Uh, horrendous. There? 59 men dead for a month without anybody knowing because there was no radio on the, on the trawler. Um, and then another went down a day after, and then a few weeks went by and another one went down, and it was just horrendous. And Lillian stood up, but you said it was a feudal system, and the fishing industry and all was a feudal system run by private landlords and private owners of trawlers. Well, there were zero-hours contracts before zero-hours contracts, wasn't there? Zero-hours contracts. As soon as you got your foot back on the landing hole, you were sacked, basically. Yeah. You didn't, yeah. you, you, no redundancy. And then you'd be called up again when the next trawler were going out that wanted you. And that's how it operated. And uh, Lillian wanted it all to change, but they, they reared up against the summer wicked with, with real venom. She lost a job. She, she, she only had a job in a fish slicing factory and she, they sacked her. Um, she was blackballed for, forever. Yeah, I think, all, I think all she ended that. up working. The only job she could get in the end was in a cloakroom in a nightclub. That was yeah. it. And... Uh, but the fact is, now you go around the hall, which is fantastic, but there's murals to her, there's, you know, she's celebrated now, but this is such a... I think there's been a plaque been put up recently, yeah. there was something, but it's such a new... But again, it's that a woman putting her head above the parapet. It's tell, she lived on Coltman Street in, in Hull, which is where Hull Truck Theatre first started. <gasps> ah, is that where? In early 70s, yeah. It, um, it's an amazing story. I love that, again, that kind of history where, you know, somebody was vilified... At the time, then 40 years later, 50 years later, has a blue plaque put up on the front yeah. door. It's good. Anyhow, we... we, 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 we anyhow. Sorry, Still yeah, on. yeah. <laughs> so it's me as well. Um, so we, we come to Nico then. Yeah. Now, she's not uh, a northern heroic <laughs> no. woman. No. But she has a connection. No, it is... I mean, it, we are laughing, but it, it, there is a very strong connection to the north. Yeah. With her, yeah, 
Uh, is it a story that you came across, or were you led to it by somebody? Or I can't. You know, I was trying to think because I was trying to think the first time I listened to the album, and I was thinking the first time I came across it. But I think it was again, and then I, I remember I sat the other day and I was thinking, oh, crikey, I was like everybody else who, at the time when I got into the underground, and went, oh, and that that model who couldn't really sing. Yeah. You know, that because I'd bought into the narrative that she was a terrible singer because that's what... I don't mean to be... But I, the, the men around me at the time who were into the music had said, oh, and, you know, and then they go a bit off the bar when she joined them. And I was like, oh. So I'd sort of not really given a, a lot of thought. And then I'd done a film with a filmmaker called Carol Morley. And she's fantastic. She was from Stockport originally novelist and filmmaker, and she was telling me... Uh, she'd done this film called Alcohol Years. I don't know if you've seen it. If you do, you should seek it out. And it's about her sort of teenage years in Manchester, going to the Hacienda. Um, she was... Oh, I hate the term promiscuous, because it's, it's always used with a woman, but she, she, she slept with a lot of people in Manchester at that time, and she put an advert in the local paper saying, if you knew me at this time, get in touch, and people did. And then it's this whole... And it's more about how people... You find more about the person than you do about Carol, really. Mm. And just... And, and, and she'd had a, a dad commit suicide. She's Paul Morley's uh, sister. Blah, 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 blah. And we got chatting, and she was telling me she used to clean for Nico. She used to clean for Anton Corbin, but she got sacked because she smashed her vase. And then she started telling me about this whole, you know, this and just this whole sort of community that was going on. So I got really sort of fascinated by it. And then I came across James Young's book, Songs They Don't Play on the Radio. And then just having your mind... And I knew people had said it's, you know, it was... But it was always a bit like... <laughs> used to say this to see McCucknall riding around on his bike and Nico. I think I'd rather have spotted probably Nico. But at the time, you know, it was just that she was another person. She'd go, what, riding around... This, this you know, German film star be riding around a bike in, um, in Manchester. But I never quite knew why. And I thought, what happened there? And then I was just fascinated by it. So I read this book... And then just that connection, because she connects with everybody, doesn't she? The Fall, Alan Wise, you know, everyone I spoke to. I did a project with Johnny Marr, and he was like, oh, yeah, I met her in... I met her in the Hacienda, sat in her anorak, because it took... with well, the face sort of half tucked in, and, you know, and then my friend Adrian, who's... I do eccentronic research, country used to go and play pool in a pub in Presswich, and she used to come and say, you know, sort of, can you find me drugs and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, this, how did this woman, who had this amazing life from Fellini films to the factory, you know, before that, in the 50s and 60s, in Ibiza, hanging out with Chet Baker, end up... Well, we know now, because, like people said, the rent and the heroin was good grade, the heroin was good grade and cheap in Manchester, but ends up sort of slumming it mm. in, you know, industrial... Sort of, you know... Press yeah, yeah, and, you know, and, and when yeah. Manchester wasn't the all singing, all dancing, you know spangly place it is now there was a nascent kind of underground bohemian scene i suppose yeah with the poetry and the kind of alternative music that they were doing but you always wonder about that you know i i always think people talk a lot of shit about music and it's like yeah. it's retrospectively made to fit the narrative so you know was nico there because she wanted to experiment with manchester musicians I think no. likely not. Well, no, I had spoke yeah. to James Young and he said, basically, she'd come to do a gig yeah. and she had no money. And yeah. they'd left her at the train station and she just started to cry and they said, what's the matter? And she went, I've got no money, I've got nowhere to go. So they went, oh, OK, we'll, we'll find you some digs then. So that's mm. when they put her up in... She, Alan Wise found her a place in, in Presswich and then she, she stayed there for a while. But it wasn't any of desire... Well, this is what yeah. I you know, was told, no desire for her to stay. It was she had nowhere else to go and had no money. 
know. That more fits the, the notion of bohemian free spirit, don't but it, you? But it's like the 60s, isn't it? I remember being yeah. obsessed with the 60s and thinking, oh, I wish I'd been around in the 60s. I wish. And then you read the John Didion essays and go, oh, of course. Yeah. It was a time of people being exploited, young people turning up in San Francisco. And, you know, it wasn't, it was an, an unhealthy, you know, I know we all saw one at the Stones gig and then the, you know, when the um, Hells Angels, you know, murdered somebody and that was the end of the 60s. But I think the 60s was definitely on the way before that. But I saw, you know, through my imagination, the 60s was this amazing place. And I said to my mum, mum, like in the 60s, what was she? Oh, Maxine, I was 21. I had your sister by then. Mm. And I said, did you know anybody like in the counterculture? She said, well, I knew a man who had bleach blonde hair, so I'm thinking he was gay, so maybe. When I don't think that's counterculture. But that was, you know, I thought everybody, I didn't realise it was little pockets. I thought everybody was swinging around in bell bottoms and Murray Quant flurry blouses, you know. But of course... Only for those who could afford and... Yeah. I, I remember when Boy George first came on Top of the Pops and my granddad were watching... He used to like watching Top of the Pops and Boy George came on. He said, if he ever walked up Station Lane, they'd have him down. <laughs> <laughs> and that's 80s. Yeah, but, but he was... But do you not remember sort of with Boy George and that? But I know, but I, I mean... I, Oh, the, I know, the grandmas loved it, and, and rightly too, you know, but it was... I don't know, sometimes I think, were we not a bit more tolerant or maybe we were a bit more naive then? We didn't really... No, I think it's all been made up since. Is it? I, yeah, sort I'm of, sure, yeah. I'm convinced yeah. that a lot of the narrative about the 60s has been written in the 70s, 80s... Yeah, of course, and so, and so as it will go on, won't it? As it always will go on, yeah, yeah. Well, it's but, still the 90s now when I But I still it. believe that Nico was a true bohemian. Of course. She came from a... A posh German family, so I could afford to be, but but uh, the fact that she ends up in in Manchester at the, towards the end of her life and still doing interesting things, yeah, I just think it's a good story, a part of that. Well, it's a fascinating story, and I think even though you say she's from a wealthy family, I think she really did live hand to mouth, didn't yeah. she? There was nothing. I mean, she was an offshoot of that family, you know. That mother was left by, you know, well, a father. The, the, again, that's you, you know, some say died in the war. Blah blah blah. I don't quite know. Some say you know. concentration camp, yeah. but I, I can't yeah. believe that. But you, you, you don't. I mean, no. But there's all sorts of stories. But I'm just. I'm. I think I'm fascinated by her because I think she's. She's so complex and complicated in that way. Or maybe not. It's just trying to understand Nico. There's nobody mm. like Nico. You know, it was there's certain characters that you try and you know if you're going to play them or just. You, I I just oh God, I can't I can't. I don't understand her. I don't, mm. in a way, I couldn't quite try and... And that's when we did the piece at Manchester Festival. It was like, let's not do a bio-up, let's not do the Nico story. Nobody needs to see that. But let's try and crack it, you know, and, and in the spirit of Nico, in a more sort of performance art way, let's try and do some understanding. And we what based on was a woman in trauma. Because she's, you know, she says... And I believe her that she's, something had happened during the war. She was raped. There was a sexual assault... Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the the repercussions and the ripples of that created the Nico that then we... Because mm. she wasn't a well woman, you know what I mean? She obviously... Mm. Now she would have probably been diagnosed with something, you know. I don't know, I don't know. She just feels very... But And she was an addict and, and those people... And addicts are very unpredictable, you know, very unpredictable mm. people, aren't they, you know? You, you're shying away slightly from the fact that she was an overt racist as well. And... Well, yeah. 
But she was, she was. She, but again, she was contradictory with it. She was, and then other times people would say, well, then some of the things she'd say. But yeah, she... But, you know what I mean? But again, I say, look at the men in the music industry. Eric Clapton, people that constantly... But men, it gets pushed aside. But when I said I was doing Nicole, that everyone kept saying to me, she's a racist, she's a racist, she's a racist. Mm. I said, Marky Smith said contentious things. Everybody, I, mean, Mar- I mean, all right, OK, Morris has had his day now, thank God, I think, hasn't he? You know what I mean? He <laughs> said to many. Yeah, but <laughs> can't you like... Oh. But yeah. y- y- you know what I mean? Even Bowie back in his day said some... You know what I mean? Didn't he about fascism? You know, and we can all you know, well if 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 people are gonna blame drugs and maybe you know, Nico can but she was a complicated woman who was traumatised. I'm not mm. making no I'm not making any excuses for it at all, but I think you can't ignore characters because they're difficult and they've got unpleasant ideas. It's not about going, Oh, let's let's like them, but let's try and understand them and then maybe, you know, there's one thing, kid, you'll, you'll always be able to never be accused of just doing left-wing women, anyhow. That's, that's well, <laughs> no, because you, 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 it's just... I'm fascinated in the, in, in the psyche. It's like when I played Myra Hindley. I remember the, I fought to get that job, and so many actresses I knew would audition for it said, I don't think I want to do it, I don't mm. think I want to do it. And mm. I was like, why not? And they were all looking at me like, they went, oh, you're weird. And I went, no, this is why you do it. I don't say I want to understand her. I'm like, I don't... I think she was a monster, but... It's about the human psyche. It's fascinating. And if you shy away from ugly things, then nothing ever gets solved, does it? Or nothing ever gets understood? If you just go, well, that's... You you know, and I think maybe that's what's happening a little bit. No, you've got to confront ugly, unpleasant things because there's a a lot of it about there, isn't there? There's a lot more coming as well. Yeah, exactly. So... It's a good thing to say, that. I'm pleased you've said that. Oh, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> no, it is. It's, it's, it's a great thing to say. What do you think she adds to this album? That's what I'm interested to know because you, you just referred to the fact that you know a lot of your male mates might have said she spoiled Velvet Underground. They were this pure, somehow alternative Bohemian band, and then they well, get. Uh, it's in hindsight now. I, do you know what I mean? I she brings she just brings that gravity, and she has got that sort of. There's, some, there's something... I think what my fascination with Nico is that I, there's people in life that you go, where they're connected to. Some of us just walk on the earth, don't they? And some people, I think, are, I don't know, it's a spiritual thing and I'm not religious at all and I would say I'm an atheist, but whether it's... It feels to me like they've plugged in somewhere differently. Like I always think Carol Churchill, the playwright's like that. There's mm. certain... Or there's, certain, there's one or two actors I know and I go, where, where do you get your energy from? It doesn't feel where the rest of us get it from. Mm. And that's with Nico. And I think as well, I am... Op- I am fascinated by the dark side of things, probably because it's not somewhere I naturally go to. Mm. You know, I'm interested in dark things. I'm not a dark... I don't think I'm mm. a dark person. I don't have that. But I love experimenting with that because I, I, I think I know safely I can come back from that. I'm all right. You know, I think that's why I can play parts like that because I think I'm, I know myself enough to go... I, it, it won't... You know, people say, oh, did that not upset you? Did that not disturb you when you did that? And I go, no, because I'm confident enough... I can get myself... Because it's just acting. Back. Of course it is. As my mother used to say, you're not packing parachutes. <laughs> but, and the squeaky wheel gets the oil, and those are the two things I say all the time, as she used to say. But it's right, it is just acting, it's playing. So it is play. That's why it's called a play. Mm. I don't, you know, I'm not a fan of this method, when, because I think it, you inflict on other people, and everyone has a method. And you'll be in a room with ten actors and they all work very differently. I try and work, if I'm in a room with ten actors, I try and go, oh, how does everyone work? Let's, 
let's find a common ground where we can help each other because it's about an exchange of energy but some mm. actors don't some actors it's about them mm. you can i could leave the room and they still be acting mm. you know i can't i'm again I, i'm not being self-deprecating i'm not good enough i need to stand to me it's about standing across somebody looking them in the eye and having it's like tennis it's a game you've got to bounce off somebody if you're somebody you've not bounced off then i, I got to pick i got oh, i can't i can't muster and some actors don't. They must, you know. Some actors are solo performers, and some actors are team players. It's just, mm. and actually, I think probably more of the film stars are more sort of independent. I think that's what makes you a film star because it's you and the camera. I think that, you know, in some ways, not all. I mean, that's a very, that's a very large <laughs> sweep of a statement there. But there's a famous story about it's Laurence Olivier about Marathon Man. Oh yeah. And Dustin Hoffman is, is spending nearly all the day deeply into the method yeah. and preparing himself for this, this part that he's playing. And uh, Olivier's getting bored with him. So at the end of one of the days, he goes up to him and he said, why don't you just act? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's true, it's true. Well, it's exhausting for everybody. It's fine if you want to go in a little room and do it, but it's like, I've worked with actors like that and it gets exhausting because they want to stay in character all the time. But it's usually only when they're playing, like, edgy. Yeah. And it's sort of easy to do, you know what I mean? I think we've, do, we've, we've, we've done a lot of talking and it's time for a bit of music, but I'll, just, I'll leave you with one. Um, we're talking just while we were waiting. Nico, there's an extraordinary thing that happened after she died. Um, does anybody know, there's a village called Upperthong near, near Olm Firth. And there's a... There's a a chapel there called St John the Evangelist, and the, they were the first person, people in the world to have a, a memorial service for her. And the first person to turn up was Bill... Owen. Bill Owen, who was compo in uh, <laughs> Last of the Summer Wine. And it's because Nico apparently liked walking alone on the hills above Home Firth. And so they had this fantastic memorial service there that were full of punks and goths and, and Bill Owen. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. It wasn't publicised. Not a lot of people know about it until about 15 years later. So we're already into the 2000s by now. And Olmfirth, 2012, I think, Olmfirth decides to have a film festival. So they decide to uh, hold it in St John the Evangelist Chapel in, in Upper Thong. And they do Fellini's film with it with her in. And they do some Andy Warhol films with her in, and they recreate the the Nico moment in Upper Thong. I know. Funny. It's great. It's a long way from the factory and <laughs> Velvet Underground, but it just shows how this kind of I don't know spirit of bohemian carefreeness does travel. Let's say, let's say thank you for now to Maxine. I, it was a lovely interview. Um, she, you said some lovely things. So thanks ever so much. No, and then you. we'll have it. So, round of applause, please. And um, as, as Rev said, we'll have, a, we'll have a beer break now and for ten minutes, then we'll come back and have a listen at this here record. After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q&A. Over to, over to questions, and we'll have ten minutes of, of questions. Question to anybody who can answer it. Um, 
Nico obviously started off in, in Germany and then moved. How the hell did she end up in New York recording with an established band like Velvet Underground and getting like three or four tracks on one of their sort of semi one of their you know, main no, no, albums? No, no, no. She was in Fellini's film La Dolce Vita yeah. and she was being groomed, I suppose, for being a, a kind of German bombshell star. Uh, and then ended up in, in, in New York. I think she was destined for Hollywood, Gary, wasn't she? At one, she was destined for Hollywood at one point and washed up in, in New York and, and met Warhol. Sorry, she, she had a, a number of very famous boyfriends, I think. Um, Alain, Alain Delon. Yeah, she um, had a child to, to yeah. him. She had a child What's to that? Alain Delon, who yeah. also became a heroin addict, I think. Yeah. His, his mother Jim had Morrison, some yeah. input in that. She was um, boyfriends with um, Brian Jones, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, Jim Morrison. She... she Got about a bit, you Lenny know. She Cohen. met all the best people. <laughs> Cohen when he was on one at Greek yeah. Islands, yeah. Leonard Cohen. And Lou, there was a relationship with Lou Reed, wasn't there? Well, was that not? I, I'm not sure. sure but, but yeah. He admits yeah. it, does he? Yeah. Because then there was a lot of tension, wasn't there? And I think that was. Delon's son, to, with, with with Nico, ended up in Warhol's factory as as well. Hmm. I think it was uh, Nico, his mother, that introduced him to heroin. It was. Yeah. And they used to take it together, didn't they? It was what he had, sorry. Yeah. Nico introduced her own son to heroin. They used to oh. share it and take it together. She said, this is how you do it. You make that sound like a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've turned out all I, right, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> So, yeah, that's how she ended up in New York. Did, didn't she knock about with Johnny Cooper Clark then when she... Didn't they have a pub? In Manchester. Holly, but Holly, didn't they have a pub in Holloway, off Holloway Road? I'm not sure. I think they loved it, yeah. Not, not, not as, as partners, no, no. as mates. Just, just... Um, that, that, I mean, that book's worth, worth reading uh, that, that Maxine mentioned. What's it James Young, yeah. Young Nico songs they never play. On songs they never play on the radio. It's one of the best rock and roll books of all time. Yeah. It's very, very good. Um, it, yeah. <laughs> they have a blood fight at one point in 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 it. They're squirting the blood out of the <laughs> the heroin syringes at each other. In middle ages time. Do you know anything about the Ibiza years? The uh, last years, what she spent in Ibiza before she passed away. She knew Ibiza from being a young woman mm. uh, and loved it. But the she died in Ibiza just after a few days after arriving. She hadn't been there. She'd been in Berlin doing a, a gig and a concert tour. And when it finished, she decided to spend some time in Ibiza riding a bicycle. And that's when she fell off a bicycle and, and killed herself. But she'd only been there a few days on that last occasion. But she did know it well from a, a younger life. Yeah. She was going to... A, the, the Ibiza scene was going a lot longer before we, yeah. we write about these days. Yeah. And she was a part of it. She's, I mean, she's from a very wealthy family, as probably most of you know, and uh, her family were historical brewers in Cologne. 
th there's this particular beer in Cologne called Kolsch, and only three or four families specialise in this very... Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very autonomous city, is Cologne, and they, they have everything of their own. And they're very proud of their brewing tradition. Kolsch is only ever made in, in Cologne. And her family were the biggest makers of, of this Cologneish beer. And if you go to Cologne now, you can still go in Pafgan Beer House. It's about holds about 700 people on long wooden tables, and that's her family. I've been in it. It's a, it's a fantastic. Is this place. a plug for your book? It's the beer talking. By I the ought way. to put that in there. Really, <laughs> yeah. I've been in Nico's third cousin twice removed yeah. ale house. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, more questions. We've got a question over here, actually, which what? is. Uh, there we go. So a question for Maxine. Um, you did some amazing line dancing in that episode of Man. <laughs> did, you, did you have special training or? Is it uh, well, yeah, oh, months, months <laughs> uh, with the uh, Salford. Um, no, no, literally uh, on. I think I was doing a theatre. I I've known Diane Morgan since I was seventeen. We both auditioned for uh, Manchester. Theatre School, Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, and I remember she did a monologue. And I thought, oh, my God. And I'd seen loads of people do it before because you had to watch everybody do their audition speeches. And I thought, I thought I'd seen... So, and it was this one about a woman who was a hairdresser. And I just remember she sat down in this chair. Put, she was, like, must have been 17. Put her hair in a ponytail and did this monologue. And everyone else had really hammed it up. And Diane just did it dead straight. And I thought... She's, and she was hilarious. Nobody else was laughing. I was laughing my head off. So at the end of the audition, I went up to her and I said, I think you're fantastic. And she went, mm. She was like, oh, get off. No, no. <laughs> anyway, neither of us got in. We didn't make it to the next round. So we just went off and had a cup of tea. And then we sort of kept in touch. And, I, and for years, because she's, she's so talented. So anyway, then, obviously, she worked and worked and got Mandy. And then she just sort of got in touch and went, will you come and be in it? So I was only on three days. Yeah. So literally, I learned that line down about ten minutes before we... We shot it. We oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> she's bril She's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. You know. I mean, yeah. 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 She's got all. She's got some. Yeah. Loads. Of, well, it's one of them things. You know what I mean? It'll just. Yeah. So many people want to be in it now because I. I mean, I'm not name dropping, but she got in touch with me and she said. Uh, she said, I'd love him. She said, you know Tom... I know Tom Courtney a little bit. He, he wanted me to... He was... I don't know if anyone's ever read his memoirs, and it's about his letters between him and his mum when he's at drama school. And he got in touch with me and he said, oh, I'd really like to make it into a TV series. Would you like to play my mum? And I said, I'd love to. Anyway, nobody wanted it. It's mad, isn't it? Tom Courtney. No, no TV broadcaster wants to make a... You know, so anyway, we kept in touch, and then Diane said, oh, I'd love Tom... I said... Oh, dropping my line, thinking he'll be like, "What?" And he went, "Oh, I love her! I love her! Yeah, can I be in it?" So he was in Fatberg. Did you see the one about the? She yeah. got the. Yeah. But yeah, she's yeah, she's brilliant. All right, just uh, Mr. no good next week. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Salmon. It's just a, an album-related question, really. Uh, Ian Ian knows, uh, and you uh, you worked with a fellow yourself, Richard Orley. His version of Waiting for My Man, uh, for me, his arrangement is absolutely superb. It beats Lou Reed's hands down. Have you? Have you? I know. I know. I know it's, uh, I've never heard it. Uh, have you have you heard that one, Max? I haven't. I haven't heard oh, that one. Oh, it's a actually. treat for you. It's a treat for you. The live one, YouTube it. It's superb. Oh, I'll have to 
absolutely. When you when you did Funny Cow, did you come across him much, or did he just? Oh come yeah, in yeah, because he was in. I've got a video of him singing in the hotel foyer, and me and I was crying. He got his guitar out and he just sang. You know what he's like, and he just mm. sang Funny Cow to me. Mm. I'd we'd done a day's filming, and I, yeah, and then Tony Pitts, the writer, Jeez, thought it'd be hilarious to film it, me crying because yeah. he was. You know, many times you get Richard Harley doing a. But no, he was brilliant because he came in and obviously filmed his scenes because he was in it with um, Corinne Bailey Ray, and then uh, yeah, he was a re- him and Tony a good a good pals. Tony Pitts, who's from Sheffield, who wrote the piece. But yeah, and we sort of kept in touch since. Yeah, um, you, you're on Six Music quite a lot. I don't know why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> it's only because I live up the road. Oh, I'm gonna say so. You, I mean, you obviously use mic. It's not working. I don't think. Is it? Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, so you've, you've Craig Charles last time, and but obviously but you've got a sample of your talking quite a lot on Six Music. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well. My, kids, my kids listen to that quite a lot. Um, just, uh, yeah, what, what is that because you were into music? Or? I think, to be honest, because they knew I was, I think they found out I was into my music, and it started years ago. Mark Riley got oh, in yeah. touch. I mean, that's how I heard about you being Nico. Yeah, because he said, oh, will you, would you... I, I can't remember. It was when he used to get people to come and curate a show. So Mark got me in, and, you know, cause Mark knows everything about music, but there was a few things he was like, oh, I didn't know about it, I didn't know about this, I didn't know about that. So we, we ended up sort of keeping in touch. And then Michelle Chowdhury, who's his uh, producer went in to do... She wanted to do a straight drama, radio drama. So she got in touch with me and said, oh, would you write? So I wrote this this radio play for, for a woman who thought Keith Keith Moon was a dad. It's called <laughs> My Dad Keith. And she finds out he isn't. <laughs> but she's got this... Delu- she thinks her mum... Her mom, she doesn't know who her dad is. And she works out that she was obviously... Con- she was conceived at the same time that... that um, the who played at, at Bellevue in Manchester. So... <laughs> So me and Michelle did that together, and mm. then, but and it is because literally I only live about fifteen minute drive away. So I think when they're a bit, when they're struggling a bit, <laughs> they asked me, and I did that Mary Ann Hobbs, you know, yeah. for people with great music, great taste, whatever. I go, oh god, but I just I got in one day to an interview, and a producer got me, and I went, oh, we just because you know like BBC, don't so we? So we just come in and uh, do a few little. So they keep playing it and playing it, but yeah, never do. But I love six music. I, I love. Say, it's got a little bit. Um, it's a bit. It's got a bit. Sometimes I listen. I go, oh, it's a bit mainstream. Yeah. But like Mark's show, and yeah. y- you know, and I love the Freak Zone and stuff like that. And I do. I have it on most of the time. But it's yeah. I was very distraught at that point when we thought we were, they were going to get rid of it. Do you remember? And yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's a good. But I just some uh, yeah. But I think yeah, some they need yeah, a bit edgier sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, we, off, yeah. we were talking um, in car magazine about um, talking about Craig Charles, who's, who's, who's gave you the, the ultimate compliment, I think, when he he, he he was so impressed about your Scouse accent. In did, did anybody watch Han? And he was so complimentary, wasn't he, about oh, you know yeah. uh, the ultimate uh, accolade, really, from a, a bona fide bloody red blooded yeah. Scouser, <laughs> yeah, and. I, I, I think I speak about on, on behalf of everybody that program. I, I've it was an hard watch, and I, I again what Craig Charles 
he was in tears every episode uh, as I was and I think if, if you don't win an award for that the TV gods need to look for another job uh, no. it was amazing well, I wouldn't put I think, any money on it but you know thank you and, and, and you went to the match last night didn't you I went to watch Leeds get beat 6-0 <laughs> Dirty, filthy leads. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> Dirty leads. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm still in touch with the uh, with Anne, Anne, who I played Anne Williams, her daughter Sarah. So I'm, I've, we've become pals, and there's a big gang of them. There's Tony O'Keefe and Stevie Hart, who was in the show, who, who was portrayed in the show. They were two of the guys who tried to save Kevin. They put him on the hoardings and, and moved him, and they've got this lovely little like. You know, there's a gang of them now who've all come together because of this tragedy and they all go and watch the match or they said, oh, come with us. So I went last night and watched, went to watch Liverpool with them. So that was brilliant, yeah. At, yeah. Least, at least she's not a Man United fan. Exactly. <laughs> and I can nearly hear them <laughs> from me. I don't think anybody in Salford's a Man United fan. Yeah, it's, for, well, it's for blowings, isn't uh, it? Our photographer's uh, <laughs> hanging his head in shame here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we always we always give a, a, a gift of the Cat Club to a Cat Club guest, and we'll, we'll do all that tonight. You all right, Tony? Oh. <laughs> I panicked then. I thought it was that picture. I was you're like, very, you're very. Old. <laughs> I was like, you're all right, lads. <laughs> I know. Your Cat Club mug. Oh, thank you. And your Cat Club T-shirt. Bless you. Thank and you thank you very, much. very much for coming. We've oh, all, it's a pleasure. I think well, we've all enjoyed it. Come on, we Moving. Don't go away. And a thunderous round of applause for our very, very special guest, the truly wonderful Maxine Peake.